This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, we are uh, very fortunate today. We have with us uh, Stephen Olakara, who uh, is the founder and president of one of the most important organizations in the United States today uh, for getting millennials and other young citizens involved in politics, uh, helping them once they're involved in politics to work together. Uh, his organization is called the Millennial Action Project, and it's also super awesome to have Steve here because uh, he's a former student of mine. Uh, Steve, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, before our discussion of millennials, uh, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Siri's scene setting poem. Uh, what's the title of your poem this morning, Zachary? Waiting Room. Let's hear it. I have been waiting for a new rhythm. I have been waiting in the waiting room for new syllables to stream out of the centrifuge of America. And I have been waiting when I trudged in silence through the Wisconsin snow. I have been waiting as I learned to crawl across the hardwood of a house that had seen a sentry go past behind its, beneath its musty rafters. And I have been waiting for a new voice when I, struggling to find my own pen, scrawled meaningless lines across more pointless paper in hopes of finding poetry. And I have been waiting for a new voice. I have been waiting for a new melody to rise from the depths beneath the geriatric specialists who treat the special geriatrics and the million-strong army of AARP besiegers. And I have waited for a new song in car trips through the depths of a deep south deepening its diversity. And I have dreamed in Vicksburg. I have screamed against the stars beneath Austin's spring nights. I have searched beneath the stones of a Seattle beach under the shadow of the giant stick up the... And I have been trying to hide from the butts of America. And beneath the words that I have scrawled on hotel notepads and in the back of my school books, I have sought, I have been waiting for a new psalm to be written in the holy book of democracy, risen out from the tree-lined suburban hysteria that calmly screams unreality between the Walmarts and the highways. From the armies I have sought a refuge when I have dreamed in Madison, have laughed in Memphis, have cried in Montgomery, have slumbered in Texas for the revolution out of reach, the hope just beyond my fingertips. Wow. I love the revolution out of reach, Zachary. Uh, what, what is your poem about? My poem is really about um, trying to find uh, the, the voice of myself and of, the, of my peers reflected in our national democracy and in our national conscience. And I think... It's a really sad time when older people who, who whose time has really passed are still holding on to what should should now become uh, platforms for younger people. That's very well said. Uh, Steve, uh, what role have young people played in our democracy in the past? I know this is something you've thought a lot about. Yeah, well, for, again, thank you for having me on sure. the show. It's a real honor as... Uh, your viewers may, listeners may or may not know, you've been a constant source of inspiration for my work over the years, uh, dating back to my days in college. So it's really meaningful to be here Thank you. on the podcast. So you're right. And one of the ways I think you've influenced me, Jeremy, is to think about leadership in the context of history. And uh, I think you've said before that history is the, the one laboratory of the human experience and leaders need to look back in order to think forward. Right. So when, in fact, in the early days of starting Millennial Action Project, we were reading a number of historical documents. And 
one theme that stood out constantly throughout those documents from the founding era to the 1960s and the women's movement and onwards was this theme of young people making change. And in fact, there's, I think, a direct correlation between transformative leadership and youth. And sometimes we miss that story because the most iconic leaders have been idolized and marbleized and have been put into museums and put into monuments and you are always looking up at them. But then I think what history allows us to do is to take a peek behind the scenes and see that these really were real people. And when you start looking at their most famous speeches, I, at least when I was looking at them, I I, I had the dates in mind and I had their birth dates in mind and I realized, hold on, they were extremely young. And so if you look at, for example, the civil rights movement and you see that a Dr. King, when he first became a national figure uh, after leading the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, he was just 26 years old. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And and when you think about uh, his level of maturity and sophistication, it adds uh, even more, I think, of the wow factor to what he was doing. And and. When he gave his most famous speech, I Have a Dream, he was just uh, 34 years old. Wow. And John Lewis at the time was uh, 23. And John Lewis led the the, the march over the bridge in Selma, Alabama. Sure, 1965. Yeah, 1965, when he was just 25 uh, years old, standing in the front of that that march. And uh, the other period that really influenced me was the founding era, And these uh, documents uh, written by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and so many of those, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they were young people too. Jefferson, you know, his most proud accomplishment uh, is uh, being the lead author of the Declaration of Independence. Right, right. And he was just 33 years old, just 33. And uh, James Madison first elected to the Continental Congress when he was 29 and was – 36 years old when he became the the lead author of the Constitution, when he wrote the Virginia Plan, which was the uh, preceding to the Constitution. And then I actually looked into, okay, who are these delegates uh, and who were the founding fathers in 1776? And you realize a majority of them uh, were under 40. And so you think, well, is there some correlation here? And I do think the power of youth is, uh, well, Bobby Kennedy, I think, said it best. He said, uh, young people have the least ties to the past and the greatest stake in our future. Yes. And I think when you approach these problems with that mentality, it's a fresh perspective. You're not encumbered by the ways things have always been. And that allows you, I think, to be a, a disruptor. Right. Uh, most, uh, a lot of times it's a positive disruption. Sometimes it's negative disruption. Um, but you have a chance to really do something new and build new coalitions that didn't exist before. So I think that's part of the story. One of the striking things about your excellent historical examples uh, from the founding, uh, from the civil rights movement, is many of the figures you mentioned uh, were not traditional figures either. Mm. Uh, Certainly, uh, the civil rights activists, these are African Americans. Uh, These are ministers, in some cases, getting involved in politics, right? And of course, the founding fathers, uh, they were not seen as traditional political actors uh, by British royalty. Uh, George Washington himself wanted to be uh, a general in the British Army and was never accepted in that role. So does that matter, having having outsiders, in a sense, young outsiders uh, getting involved? Yes, absolutely. I think 
there's uh, a perspective you gain when uh, you've been rejected or you feel that you're not in the mainstream of uh, society and that narrative resonates with me having grown up as a first generation American and a uh, Indian American in a, a highly Caucasian part of suburban Wisconsin. And you, so when you feel um, in those situations, I think you take a I think a, a keen look at how society is operating and maybe that gives you a, a, a maybe a, a more refined or a stronger um, critique of how society is going um, because of the ways in which uh, it hasn't accepted some people. And uh, maybe that's helpful. Right. And and what uh, in, in your study of this and taking those lessons to the present, what have these young outsiders like yourself, what have they done to be able to get into the game? Because many of my students will say to me, you know, I want to do something, yeah. but I don't see I don't see an avenue for getting involved. What have you taken from the past about avenues for involvement? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the good news about the American tradition and uh, American democracy uh, is that it's sought to, although imperfectly over time, but sought to um, create a political culture where where people have a voice, even those who are not in the mainstream. Of course, we've never been perfect, but in the context of human history, America has been quite revolutionary sure. uh, on that count, where Im- today you have immigrants uh, who are me- serving me- as members of Congress. Absolutely, and running and, major corporations. Right, exactly, exactly. And and I think that's part of what's made America a very dynamic society. And uh, a number of our American presidents, if, even if you take Barack Obama, for example, uh, was an outsider. Bill Clinton was an outsider uh, who was not part of the uh, Washington establishment. And so I actually think there is this interesting culture where voters are often interested in newness, new perspectives, uh, ones that are from outside of the political establishment. And maybe that is part of, maybe um, de Tocqueville talked about this a mm-hmm. bit in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, um, you know, we, 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 we don't want uh, an elite overpowering family uh, running all of right. our business. And once that starts to creep into play, and we saw this recently with the Clintons and the Bushes in, in 2016, people rebel against yes. that. Yes. And, uh, and I do think that's a healthy piece of political culture. But I think you raise another important point about young people today yes. who are trying to, to get active. And part of the underlying problem here is we've grown up, our generation, millennials, have grown up in an era of broken government, right. polarized politics. And despite millennials having the highest levels of volunteerism and service participation rates, we have the least trust in government. And so if we're going to provide a legitimate pathway into politics for young people who just want to make a difference in the world. And that's one thing I love about this younger generation. We have to demonstrate how you can create impact and then provide some of those ladders to action. Right. And so how do you do that? Yeah. So I think there are two things. One, uh, on the legitimacy side of the question, uh, Millennial Action Project is, is very active with that because part of what we're trying to do is activate these millennial elected officials and millennial leaders uh, to make that impact through government. And the great thing about our system of government is you can't make an impact if you're hanging only in your own tribe or your own faction, your own party. What our political system requires, and Madison talked about this in the Federalist Papers, is a system of checks and balances. He talked about the multiplicity of ideas. It's the sifting and winnowing, as we said, in Wisconsin that allows the best ideas to prosper. And that's the type of process we're creating with the Millennial Action Project at the state level and congressional level. And because of that, 
our level of impact is much higher than most political groups. Right. And we're able to get bipartisan bills on climate change, on gerrymandering reform, on gun violence prevention, on the future of work, on entrepreneurship actually passed and signed into law. And once that happens, we need to amplify that and share that uh, with students. And then I think with young people who then see politics as a worthwhile endeavor, which, trust me, is a uh, hard haul for for a country because uh, currently less than a third of millennials even see public service as an honorable profession. But once you can increase that a bit, um, then you need those ladders to engagement. And and, and we help with some of those in terms of bringing people into the legislative process. Actually, in fact, part of the reason we're here in Texas is we hosted a Capitol Day at the state Capitol that allowed young people to get involved. Right, right. Uh, Zachary, you had a question? Yeah, um, we've seen in the past few elections, uh, mainly in 2016, uh, that young people had a low voter turnout. Uh, Is that because uh, the national politics has disengaged millennials? Or is it more that that there needs to be something in our system that encourages the youth vote and um, encourages voter turnout more? I think that's a really good point, Zachary, and I think it's both, actually, and there are a couple of forces at play here. And and first, you're right in terms of let's look at where we are. Youth voter turnout historically has been lower in comparison to older generations, although we did see a spike of engagement in 2018. Right. And that is uh, what I call the immune system of democracy kicking in uh, in response to a lot of threats. And young people turned out in their highest levels uh, in a quarter century. And for the millennial demographic, the highest ever turnout uh, for a midterm election was roughly about 31 percent for the 18 to 29 year old demographic. And so, Zachary, to your question, I think there are a couple things happening. One is uh, you're right that I think national politics doesn't do enough to reach out uh, to young people. And part of the problem is our political institutions are are based on seniority and uh, still older people primarily dominate the vote. And so there aren't as many incentives for reaching out to young people. And then on the flip side, I think there remains this uh, legitimacy question for young people, the quote I hear all the time is, does my vote really matter? Yeah. And when you think about some of the systemic challenges of our of our voting systems and our political system and the role of money in politics, for example, you wonder, does your vote really matter? Um, so I will say, I think there are two things we need to look at. One is we need to make voting easier for young people. And that involves everything from automatic voter registration. And we have been working on that proposal. We have a democracy reform task force that's been working on that in the states. That means young people get automatically registered to vote when you get your driver's license, right. for example. And that's been shown to, to make a difference. Of course. Uh, making sure they're polling locations in uh, polling deserts. Sure. And we worked on this in Mississippi, where um, areas that have a high density of young people sometimes don't have polling locations. So that's on the making it easier to vote. But on the second uh, angle here, I think we need to make it worthwhile to vote uh, for people to know that their vote actually matters. And what does that mean to make it worthwhile to vote? So I think there are two aspects. One is I think we need to have great leaders, uh, compelling candidates that make you want to come out and vote for someone or for a vision. Uh, And then I do think the, the, the worthwhileness of voting has to include a sense that our political institutions will respond to the challenges of our generation. And when you see, for example, the issue of climate change keep getting kicked down the road constantly, um, where the most convenient answer is 
no answer, inaction, then young people don't believe that the political system is responding to them. Another great example is this huge blanket of student loan debt where right. young people are graduating graduating with, on average, $27,000 of student loans. And now today in our country, student loans exceed credit card debt. And, and, and there have been no compelling bipartisan solutions uh, over the last few years on that. And so I think those are a couple of examples where you don't, you're not seeing the policy outcomes. Right. And so that's where we need to make it more is worthwhile. Is the problem the party system? Lots of young people ask me that. Yeah. A two-party system, is, is that one of the problems? I, I, I also hear that a lot. And one of the reasons why I think we're hearing that question a lot is not only our political system is broken, but also because young people today are rejecting the partisan identities. Yes. In fact, yes. the fastest growing political affiliation in America is independent, yes. and a plurality of millennials, nearly 50%, um, identify as uh, as independent, which is interesting given all the polling that shows millennials are socialists or very left-leaning. Um, and I think there's a very interesting story there, which is millennials are coming of age in this broken system. They want to disrupt it, want to find new political identities and communities and the current binary system is not working. And in fact, if you just take a step back and, and ask yourself, does it make sense that we have binary choices on climate change, binary choices on immigration, binary choices on the future of work? It actually makes no sense right. at all because there is a plethora of ideas out there. And I think millennials are rejecting that culture of politics. Now, w- would that have a positive impact having a third party? I think it it could. Currently, the barriers to entry are extremely high, especially um, at the national level um, and even in some cases at the the local and state level. Um, And so and part of it's because there is a duopoly. uh, The two parties control uh, access to the ballot. Um, so my, my personal view is uh, we it would be nice to have a third party. It would be nice to have other options. Um, but that can't be the only solution because it will take a long time to right. get there. One can work within the parties and actually yeah. create and transform the parties from within. Yeah. Uh, S- Steve, what what is it that millennials bring to the table that makes you so optimistic? I share your optimism, yeah. but I often... Uh, meet people who don't. Uh, And uh, it's important for us, I think, to see what is so fresh and exciting and idealistic about millennials. How would you describe that to people? We see this idealism when young people are running for office. They They come in with so many fresh ideas. And a few of the traits that I've noticed is One, uh, less tethered to the partisan identity like we were talking about. I think another piece is that we're technologically savvy. And so we don't see new technologies as a threat. We see them as opportunities. A good example of this is the role of the sharing economy when Uber and Lyft and these services were coming on board. Uh, A lot of um, older legislators were just afraid of this. Uh, And and young people wanted to embrace innovation, put in place the necessary safety protocols and rules in place to protect consumers. And like most millennials, you don't own a car, right? Yes, exactly. I don't, do not, yeah, do not <laughs> have a car. Never have, have you? Yeah, yeah, I did have one in, earlier in Wisconsin, but I got rid of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, um, at least I didn't drive it in, in D.C. And so, um, and that's another big piece, I think, the tech savviness. Um, I think less, at least now, less beholden to special interests because we haven't had the uh, time to really be bought and sold by some of these uh, entrenched and incumbent but special what, interests. But what do millennials care about? What are the big issues that we could expect millennials when they take over, which yeah. we hope they will soon, yeah, yeah. Uh, that they're going to really push on? Yeah. 
So I think that, well, the biggest issue in this last election was immigration and refugee issues, which I think speaks to another reason I'm very bullish on this generation is because we tend to have a very good moral clarity. We have a good sense of justice, a good sense of right and wrong. And when we see wrong, we want to do something about it. And we saw the administration's policies related to refugees and uh, um, not not helping people who are in dire need. Separating uh, families. Yeah, separating families at the border. Um, so there's a deep response to that. I think Climate change is another huge issue, usually in the top three uh, for millennials, so much higher than for, for other generations. Um, and education is a big one, right. too. Um, both the, the challenges of having debt, but also being able to access uh, higher education. Yes. And now because of these, the epidemic of gun violence, uh, particularly um, at schools, um, that has been an issue. And I'm very proud of the Parkland students, and we've had a chance yes. to interact with them quite a bit. They have made uh, gun violence not just uh, an issue that we are aware of, but have channeled that energy into voter registration right. and voter turnout. And they understand that's how you make real change. Right. They're inspiring. Yeah. Right there. So one of uh, our students uh, has asked a very important question along these lines. This is Andrea Andriana Lozano, uh, how can millennials uh, avoid the mistakes of the past and how, once they get into power, do they prevent themselves from becoming corrupted as predecessors uh, were? Let's hear Andriana's question. How can this generation avoid repeating the mistakes of previous generations? How, Steve? How will you avoid just getting, getting on the same cycle as those before you? Well, I, I think it's a really good question, and, and I'm going to say this not just because uh, I'm here at UT Austin and sitting here, uh, but because I really believe in it. Becoming a historian is the most important way, I think, that you— Good answer, yeah. Steve. <laughs> Thank you. All right. <laughs> a plus for you. <laughs> I've been taught well. So I think that's a big piece is uh, you don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, and becoming a historian allows you to understand— the patterns of behavior that have led to monumental mistakes and monumental uh, achievements in the past. And you can become self-aware. For example, we've been talking about this issue of tribalism in our politics. And and when you look at the past of how uh, people have gone down this tribal road, you can reflect on, well, my behavior today, when I'm Uh, confronted with a value set or set of ideas that really shake me to the core, that really uh, contest what I believe in, I can respond to that by isolating myself and moving further into my tribe and demonizing the other side. Or I can try and seek understanding and compassion with those other views. And if you are a historian, you realize that the latter path is much better uh, than the former path. Right. So, in fact, having knowledge of the past, even when one is very young, is powerful, right? Yeah. It it allows you to, as a young entrepreneur, I can say that um, having knowledge of the past allows you to build uh, an organization. It allows you to build cross-generational relationships because you can resonate with themes that, say, the baby boomers right. or the silent right. generation has uh, resonated with. Um, and it, I think, shows a level of preparedness uh, to people. So I think it, it's uh, helpful on, on, on many counts. But also the second piece of that question is, uh, how do we make sure young people aren't co-opted by the right. system? And this was a major uh, discovery we made in the early days of Millennial Action Project around 2012, 2013, 
some of the first millennials getting elected to office, we did see start to become co-opted by these interests. Right. And of course, a few of them have even since then. And that's why we realized we need to stage an intervention yes. here. Business as usual will not get it done. And that's why we founded MAP. It, it, it seems to me that that's one of the major contributions Millennial Action Project makes, which is keeping millennials focused, keeping their eyes on the ball. Exactly. That, you know, these are the reasons you have gone into politics. This is what you care about. Or this is why you're doing public service. That's right. And remembering that and not getting caught up in the other disincentives to public service That's that right. exist. Zachary? Um, do, you th- uh, do you think that there are unnecessary barriers to uh, young people getting involved in politics? Because we see in America that there are limits on how young you can be to get involved in politics uh, in terms of seeking elected office, but there are no limits on how old you can be or when it is time for your generation to to hand over the baton. Do you think we need to put in place more limits on that, or do you think it just should be a more open political It's, it's ironic, right? Because, Zachary, you, you still have to wait four years to be able to vote, but yeah. uh, you probably would make better choices than many others who, who vote. Not better choices than me, but you'd make better choices <laughs> than me. <laughs> yeah, there is an interesting proposal that I heard recently that was not for term limits, which is often talked about to make sure there's good turnover, but age limits uh, to sure. uh, elected office. And Many uh, other societies have those. And historically, back to your historical point, uh, many societies in history have, have had age limits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, I, I guess I haven't thought about it enough to, to make a good decision on it, but I, I do think it's worth entertaining. And I... I personally believe in at least term limits, which I've had more time to think about, which is uh, in so many states who have term limits, you often have now millennials who are majority leaders or serving in legislative leadership because there has been that turnover. And you've made a very good point, Jeremy, that uh, people who are living longer and have access to power want to cling onto it and not give it up. And we see that over and over again. And without those term limits, which uh, I think is consistent with the spirit of the founding fathers Absolutely. who talked about a citizen legislature, uh, I think uh, I think that's very important. And we're seeing uh, this become a generational issue where left and right is uh, coming together. Um, yeah. The barriers. What? What? Uh, back to Zachary's question about barriers. Are there barriers there that we could structurally take down to empower this great new generation of millennials? Yeah, I do think we do have uh, unnecessary barriers uh, to, to entry, and and part of it is um, the se- system of seniority, which we've talked about. Um, but also part of it is if you you know, and and like you mentioned, Zachary, there are um, certain prerequisites and requirements just to be able to run for office and uh, and to, to vote. Um, For example, one of the issues that comes up right now is if you, in many states, if you're 17 years old for the primary and 18 years old for the general, you are barred from voting in the primary. And I distinctly remember this in Wisconsin. I was so excited to vote in the 2008 election, but I was 17 during the primary and then 18 for the general. So I voted in the general, but not the primary. And so our... um, uh, a few of our leaders here in Texas have actually introduced legislation oh. uh, to open that up and allow 17-year-olds to vote. Other great proposals around pre-registration of for 16- and 17-year-olds, right. which has shown to increase voter engagement. But the other piece that I've really run into working with people who've run for office, and I wish this issue would get a little bit more attention, is if you actually want to take those steps to solving a problem in your community. Sometimes running for office is the best thing you can do to change public policy. But then often you need to raise a ton of yes. money from 
largely rich donors, yes. and a lot of people do not have those kinds of networks. Sure. And Your friends you, aren't rich yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially if you're younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then during the campaign, you uh, the the cultural expectation most of the time is that you do not draw a salary during uh, your campaign or most of your campaign. So not everyone uh, can go many months without getting a, right. a paycheck. And then once you get elected to office, you are paid not a living wage uh, most of the time. You uh, in a state legislature, you can be paid you know forty thousand uh, a year, and you have a family and, and kids, and so that incentivizes older and more retired types of people to be uh, serving in office because they've built up the savings and they are past their uh, career. So we need to, and, and for young women in particular who are trying to raise their kids, Absolutely. often often there is a um, a, a, a cultural uh, taboo around uh, women saying, I need to go to my child's recital or go right. to my child's soccer game. And uh, one female legislator who's part of her work told me, but when older legislators need to get um, some kind of health care because they have a health problem, then that's seen as totally fine. Um, but So there's this, I think, uh, inequality of uh, expectation sure. um, that has really limited young people. But the financing piece is a huge Absolutely. And, and I think one of the most important things uh, we have to talk about, one of the most important things the Millennial Action Project is doing, is getting us to think about bringing down these barriers that, right. that, that Zachary brought up. Uh, so one of our students has a question about uh, legacies for the millennials. We've talked about legacies of baby boomers and others. And Nathan Hughes wants to know uh, what the millennials are going to accomplish in, in 10 years. Let's hear Nathan's question. If we fast forward 10 years from now, how will we tell if our generation has improved American democracy? Great question. That is a great question because I think as as leaders, we need to have a vision of a sense of where we're going. And uh, at least I'll, I'll give my opinion sure. on this. I, I'm very hopeful that you know, our generation will, will do a few things. One, dramatically increase our, our civic health, and that includes voting. Uh, it's still, I think just abysmal how low our generation's voting rates are. And and if you increase that level of voting, then our politics and our policy will be dramatically different. And I think as we come of age and we start owning homes, we start uh, starting, fa we're starting families and, and uh, doing a number of things, uh, I think that will hopefully increase uh, voter engagement. But I think the biggest thing, that contribution we can make to American democracy is bringing a culture of compassion and cooperation hmm. uh, to our political system. Because today, if you look at the levels of polarization um, and the level of contempt we have for people of different views, uh, it's toxic. And it's at some of the worst levels uh, since Absolutely. the Civil War. And that is a, a, a fundamental threat to democracy. But our generation has grown up in this peer-to-peer -peer environment. And we uh, are a more inclusive uh, generation, and, and that's true for every successive generation. And so we don't see issues um, of race and gender and sexual orientation in, in the same way. And we tend to be much more inclusive and welcoming yes, yes. of these different identities. Yes. And so um, if we can bring a level of compassion to our politics at a time when our country is becoming much more uh, diverse, uh, that will be potentially the biggest contribution as we seek this goal of being a multi-ethnic uh, democracy. 
and uh, and I think we're, we're we're headed in that direction. But it's really going to require millennials to create the kinds of communication, the kinds of understanding, uh, the kinds of networks, and the political culture. Uh, we need for that type of understanding and compassion to exist. Wow. I, I love the vision of a more compassionate, cooperative, diverse America. And every generation, as you said so well, Steve, uh, does that. You, you could argue there's an unfinished journey we're on. That's right. And in each generation, we're redefining and widening the circle of inclusion. And there's always resistance to that. Yeah. Because as you widen the circle, that disempowers some who are already in the center of the circle, right? That's right. And uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful, pragmatic uh, vision. Uh, a final question. Are we ready for a millennial, uh, millennials as president, senator, governor? What do you think? I think now we are. Now we are. And it's, uh, I think, a watershed moment for our country. When we started Millennial Action Project, we had this vision of creating a leadership pipeline, people getting involved at the local level and the state level, and then ultimately the national leadership level. And we believed that to be part of our theory of change, if you create a new set of norms and behaviors and uh, cultures that can reverberate louder and louder as people rise through national leadership. And so we're starting to see that happen right now. One of our jokes in Washington, D.C. right now is half of our congressional millennial caucus is running for president right now. So, <laughs> well, who so isn't who's, running for president? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So who's, Do you have an announcement to make, Steve? I, I, I will at the end of this podcast. <laughs> and we're wondering who's actually going to come to our meetings if they're all running for president. But it's true. We have the first ever credible millennial candidates running, whether it's Mayor Pete, which your listeners may have heard of, but also you have people like Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard right. and, and Congresswoman Eric Swalwell and Congressman Seth Moulton and, and a number of others uh, who I think are part of this now generational yes. shift. And I think that's very promising. And if not in this election, in the next couple elections, I think we'll that's see That's fantastic. Yeah. Zachary, do, do uh, you and your peers, do you see uh, excitement and opportunity? Or is, is this something that's going to inspire your post-millennial generation to get involved? Um, yes, I definitely think that um, that we're, that our generation has become very inspired by many of the po- new politics we're seeing. But I think one of the most important things is is um, not only making it easier to vote, but also getting exciting candidates out there. Like yes, I right. see That's right. so much more political engagement. Like when Beto was running for Senate, there was so much, so many more people who were paying attention to not just the Senate race, but the races across the country. And I think that's really important. And and your generation's not disillusioned. I remember how sad you were when Beto did not win the Senate race. Well, I think uh, our generation recognizes that it's going to take a long time, but uh, we we tr- I think we're trying to get. Uh, our voices heard in politics as soon as possible. Yes, yes. Well, I think uh, we've touched on one of the most important historical uh, insights here, which is that American democracy, the new chapters of American democracy, as Franklin Roosevelt said, are always written by young people. They're always written by people who look different from their predecessors. And they're always written in times of difficulty. And those are all the conditions we're in now. We're in the perfect moment for a new great generation of leaders and thinkers. And we're fortunate, Steve, that you're one of them and that the Millennial Action Project is providing an opportunity for you and Zachary and so many other young people to step forward. And uh, our future is bright because this is democracy. Thank you.
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.